Welcome to Karate in the Garage. I'm Corey Cope. I'm Freddie Woff. Potpourri. August continues. <laughs> yeah, man. Isn't it? Uh, it's the smell good month. It, it's the smell good month. Uh, we hope you guys loved Clue as much as we did revisiting it. And from the, some of the feedback I got, it was, it. you did enjoy it. And um, it's 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 one of those ones, I think out of all the movies we cover from 85, that we've covered specifically. There's plenty of 80 movies from 85 that we haven't touched and never will because yeah, it's been talked about enough by other people. Yeah, sure. I think Clue is one of those movies that everybody just loves. If you've seen it, you love it. And, and Right. That, I, I don't know anybody who doesn't love Clue. Right. No now, one's ever told me that movie sucks. <laughs> never. I'm like going, well, I, I have to say, you must have watched that that kid remake that came out like five or six years ago. There was like some Nickelodeon remake that came out. Or you saw Knives Out and you just don't know. Don't do that. <laughs> Look, I like Knives Out, but it's no clue. Uh, no. But here's a fun one for you. And I, now this one, I really oh, feel a lot of people have not seen this. And if you haven't seen this yet, oh my gosh, you were in for probably one of the finest Nick Cage performances. And I'm not talking about, you know, the rage Leaving case that we're always talking up during Disengage. This is like, how the fuck didn't you win an Oscar for this kind of performance? Right. And we're not talking about his Oscar winning performance in Leaving Las Vegas. This is, my opinion, better than what he did in Leaving Las Vegas. Oh, yeah. Me too, and, man. And Just, he, oh man, he's so fucking great in this movie. Obviously, we have Ridley Scott's Matchstick Man. I mean, dude, this is a this To me, this is also the Ridley Scott movie that people sleep on, or yeah. or they don't, or they're like, oh, Matchstick Man, or they don't know it's Ridley Scott for some reason um, because it doesn't seem like a Ridley Scott movie, you know? It, because it, you know, it's funny because, like we talked about off mic, it, it came in the midst of a bunch of hundred million dollar Ridley right. Scott movies, <laughs> and it's not a hundred million, although it is sixty four million dollars. Which is uh, curious. Well, um, you know, I mean, obviously the money that that money was above the line. I would say, yeah, for sure. At least, uh, at least half of it, right? Went with to you. Cage, <laughs> probably at that time. I love this movie. I, it's probably not only is it my, it's in my top five Scott movies of yeah. all time. It's it's definitely in my top three Nick Cage movies. Yeah. It, again, people don't know it or they don't talk about it or, or, or I don't know what or why that is. Um, but also, man, Sam Rockwell, man, who <sighs> I fucking love, dude, and, and who has, has delivered some doozies. Um, this is another great performance from Rockwell. And this is early Rockwell. This is right when we were just, you know, starting to find out who he was. And, and Allison Lohman. Yeah, dude. Who honestly, it's weird. I'm sure if I was to think about it, but the only two things I can think about, and I love both movies are this and drag me to hell. Drag me to hell is like how many, you know, you're what? It's uh, like five, five years, years after this? five, six years away from that. Yeah. But for me before that, the 13th floor, she's got a small oh, part right. in that and she's yeah. not in it a lot, but she's just like, she reminds me a lot of that performance. She's in white Oleander as well. And she's got, you know, she plays um, young Sandy, you know, young Sandra in big fish. I think same, same. <laughs> no, like you're noting the this is probably the smallest movie that as far as I can, you know just in scope um and, and cast that Ridley's ever done you know when you're looking at his work and you're thinking about 
character studies like, you know, someone to watch over me or a good year with, yep. with Russell. Right. Um, which came out, I think the next two years from this, like two or three years from this. Yeah. Well, five, I think. Yeah. And it's funny because when you think of Ridley Scott, you don't think of those kinds of movies. You think of big epic movies. Like we we're just talking about that were sandwiched in between us. This movie was sandwiched in between the butter, the, the bread uh, of the matchstick men sandwich was Black Hawk Down and Kingdom of Heaven. I mean, right. those are fucking epic movies, you know? And just, yeah, just the scope of those movies yeah. alone is like, you know, you would never throw matchstick men out there. It's like, when did he have time to make matchstick men in between those two things? He's <laughs> like, yeah, you know, guys, we have, uh, we got six weeks while, uh, before I'm ready to edit uh, Black Hawk Down. Let's go shoot a little movie called Matchstick Men. Now, let me ask you a question. Well, for uh, let me ask you a question. How do we not mention uh, the other pillar of, I mean, the other piece of fantastic acting is we for, almost forgot to mention Bruce McGill. Yeah. Who is the Mark or is he? He is the Mark I mean, or is he? Or oh yeah, is this, is, he? this is a movie about con men. Did we mention that yet? Right, we didn't talk about it. So <laughs> matchstick men, yes, it's they're, they're like confidence men or con men. Matchstick men based on a novel uh, from 2002, I think. Yeah, Eric Garcia, yeah. So that, that's where we're going this week. We're going down that, you know, how we love crime movies here. I, I thought at one point, I thought maybe we would save this for November, but no, we did no. not. Because why? Why wait? Why wait? Dude, because we both kind of wanted to watch this movie again. Yeah. We, like when we were talking about trying to figure out what we were, you know, one of the other movies that we were mentioned early on that we were off Michael, what we we're going to record. I'm like, yeah, that one's good. Uh, you mentioned one. I immediately said yes. And then you mentioned this. I'm like, oh yeah. And then when you said it again, on Friday, I think I'm like, yes, let's just do it. That's perfect. I'm in the mood to watch it. And, you know, Joey and I are, are hanging out in the house by ourselves. Melody's off visiting family. And I'm like, perfect. Does he and I can get into this and have some fun. And one of the things that sucks though about this, and I think this is why a lot of people haven't seen it, the one sheet for this and in turn the Blu-ray covers, DVD and Blu-ray covers. I'm sorry, man. It doesn't say, hey, watch me. No, again, it's it's this very understated poster for a Ridley Scott movie. Yeah, I agree. And that really hurt it for and for a movie that had, you know, pre P and A budget, $65 million. That's how do you how does this the one sheet that comes out of it? But you know, they're trying to, you know, in 2003, Nick is still a big studio guy. He's not doing any indies right now. He's not, you know, kind of spreading his wings and doing that stuff. And he's still a draw for somebody like Ridley Scott to put in a movie. He's still somebody that can open a movie in theaters. But this poster, man, and the trailer, I watched the trailer again before um, we recorded. And I'm like, yeah, I remember not wanting to watch this thinking, God, what is Ridley Scott doing? You know, I, I didn't, I didn't get into it. It wasn't like, it didn't have to be an epic. I didn't need that, but it just, it didn't draw me in. And I obviously that same goes for a lot of people. But I did see it before it went to video. I think I saw it at a dollar theater and I'm like, fuck. And I couldn't stop talking about the movie to people. Go see this. I know it's down the street at the dollar theater, but go see it. I wasn't familiar with the the novel before this. And then I, I've been dying to read it. And now I'm going to probably go back and revisit it. Nick Cage, both him and Sam Rockwell play Confidence Man. They're a team. The Roy Waller character that Nick plays. And I love how they set this up too. He seems pretty normal. We're getting some intercutting from from Sam on the phone, doing a little, you know, working working this woman on the phone, and then intercutting with Nick at home, preparing to come into work. And you're seeing the OCD that his character Roy has. Oh yeah, and it's like, oh wow, yeah, he's got some OCD, and you know, whatever. 
okay, I, you know, confidence man with with uh, with some OCD and that. <laughs> okay, that's kind of cool. Eventually, we you know Nick shows up and and cleans up the the rest of the call, the rest of the con with Sam Rockwell, and uh, you assume that's what's happened. You assume they just finished up the con. From there, they go on to realize there's another step to the con. I'm like, all right, this is fucking good, man. I don't, again, this is one of those movies and I know we kind of danced around it with Clue, but because I know a lot of you haven't seen this one, I'm really hesitant to talk more about it because anytime you deal with a movie with Common, you know, there's a lot more than what you're seeing on the surface. Yeah, totally. I would hate to take anything away because Joey and I watched this together and Joey just goes, this is probably one of those few movies that he would have never seen if I didn't show it to him. And he was just blown away. And for a 14 and a half year old to see a movie like this, he was just like, you could see his mind turning. And we talked for an hour. We almost got a mic to record afterwards. I'm like, no, no, no. You can't take away from my episode. <laughs> so was this his first Ridley Scott venture? Yeah, 100%. Because everything else is just like epic stuff. And sure. ironically, you know, he's seen Aliens, but he's never seen Alien. And there's so much more. We're eventually going to get to Black Hawk Down, which is my Blade Runner. Blade Runner. <laughs> I think his cinema language is still developing, and I don't want to put him in something yet to where he he's going to appreciate something like Blade Runner. But I want him to see some other things like I saw in that kind of trajectory to where he can appreciate it a lot more than if he went into it not really ready for it. Because I didn't see Blade Runner until I was like 11 or 12. I know I was like 14 when I saw it. It had been, I had already been out for a couple of years. And then, and then one day I just rented it and watched it and I loved the shit out of it. But this was his first time watching it. And what a, I mean, again, great character work. And I love the fact that I've been able to expose him to things that aren't Marvel and that aren't DC, that aren't these action movies. And he, he's not, he's so receptive to it. He's, and, and I, I love that he's into that. Because he knows, like, hey, my dad loves movies, and if he's if he wants me to watch this and a movie that he really likes, then it has to be really good. And he's into it because I'm into it. But then he eventually discovers that this is really good. We get to the end of the movie, and he says to me, "I really like her," and I go, "Good," because <laughs> <laughs> I got a movie for you. <laughs> I got a movie for you, kiddo. <laughs> so uh, it's yeah, he really loved it. And of course, for him. He's watching it. He knows Nick Cage, but for Nick Cage, for him, it's it's National Treasure. He doesn't know any other Nick Cage movies. National Treasure, the two National Treasure movies, but he knows Sam better. He knows Sam because of Galaxy Quest. He knows Sam because of Iron Man 2. So he knows him from other things. Right. He's actually seen more Sam Rockwell movies than he's seen Nick Cage movies. But when you get that point where Nick Cage's character, Roy, runs out of, runs out of medication, and you realize really soon, it's not just OCD. He's got Tourette's also. You start seeing his tics. And I'm like going, and again, I got reminded about it watching the movie going, fuck, man, how did he not get the, just the, the at least the nomination, right? Right, dude, I have no idea. I mean, it's such a weird thing. I was going to go back and look and see who was nominated for uh, Best Actor that year because I, I'm like, are there better performances than Cage and Matchstick Man in 2002? No. I have to go back and look because I got to say, man, fully nuanced performance from Cage. I mean, and, and, and again, not the rage Cage. I mean, dude, everything about Waller is he hits all the perfect notes. I mean, 
without saying too much or giving too much away about the story. And I'm going to quote Roger Ebert. Yes, that's a great quote. <laughs> this story is so complex and so compelling that when they cut away from the story, they cut to a story that's more interesting. <laughs> There's like a plot point. Every time they cut from a plot point to another plot point, you're getting a more interesting plot point. It, the entire movie's that way. It, you know, there's four things going on at all times in this movie and all of them are better than the last. I mean, I, I said it's my top five Scout movies. It, it could be top three. And I know it's real crowded up there and, and I don't want to like bump things or, but I mean, man, I really enjoy this movie when I watch it. And I've watched it twice in the last year after having not seen it since probably 03, 04, when I, you know, when it was released on home video and I did see it in a theater because, you know, it's cage and, you know, I, there, I saw this and like weatherman and all those, yeah. you know, early 2000 cage things. But this is a movie that if you have, I, I always recommend this to people. Like when they're like, Oh, you know, I'm just trying to figure out something to watch. I'm like, Oh, you ever seen matchstick man? And they're usually like, isn't that bad? <laughs> I'm like, nope. <laughs> or they're, or they're like, Mastic Man? What, what's that? And, like, and you know, I have to say, well, it's really Scott movie. And they're like, really? I don't remember that. Yeah. You know, it's weird. I guess, you know, it got a September release. I think it was, I think it was originally released or premiered at Venice maybe in September of 03. And then came out sometime later in the month, like they do. And back in 03, September was still kind of a dumping ground for some reason, I guess. Yeah. I think what happened, suffered that year isn't, you know, we were talking about, you know, what, what were they up against? They're up against a lot of stuff that year, but specifically Warner Brothers and their campaigning for Mystic River. Oh, yeah. And Sean Penn won for Best Actor and Tim Robbins for Supporting. So either way, even either way, he was... I mean, look, dude, Alec Baldwin in the cooler for best supporting was nominated. Benicio for 21 Grams, Ken Watanabe for Last Samurai. And then on best actor side, um, Ben Kingsley for House of Sand and Fog, Jude Law for Cold Mountain, Bill Murray for Lost in Translation. It was like, okay, I'm going to say none of those performances are as good as Cage no, and No, and, and that's the thing is, the, and I, don't be, I specifically named people I thought were really good in it. I specifically didn't mention Johnny Depp being nominated for Curse of the Black Pearl. Can you believe of, that shit? <laughs> yeah, right. What the uh, fuck? Know, the only way that somebody should have been nominated for playing Jack Sparrow would have been if it was Cage playing Jack Sparrow. <laughs> yes. Which, Kevin, there now now you're talking, now you got a movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Johnny Depp in Pirates of the Caribbean, Curse of the Black Pearl as Keith Richards as Captain Jack Sparrow. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, that's, that's weird, man. Like, I, I, you just rattle all those performances. And I've seen all those movies, and I can't say that any of those performances were better than Cage in this. And I'm not just saying it because I'm a Cage fan. I'm just saying if you were to watch this movie and didn't know who Nicolas Cage was, you would be like, wow, that's uh, how they get that guy to even get that good. Cause you, you think you believe every bit of it that's right. going on. Right. And you know, what's funny about it is like, wasn't Black Hawk down an Oscar darling. So it wasn't like, yeah, you know, it's not like he was, you know, people weren't were pissy with Ridley Scott or something, you know, it was like, and Nick wasn't, hadn't soured himself with people. And he was just, I mean, how far removed from, from leaving Las, Las Vegas? Vegas. It's like, uh, six, it's like years? Seven, six years at that point, yeah, probably. And he was still, I mean, he was still turning out top notch performances. I, I feel like maybe 
why he got overlooked was things like Con Air and those big action movies that came after. Maybe. People were like, oh, he's not a real actor anymore. But and I mean, that's ridiculous because Allie's great in it. How was she not nominated for supporting actress? You know, it's like sure, it, and Sam as well. It's like going these fuck. Then it just and it's almost criminal that Sam and Bruce McGill weren't nominated <laughs> for uh, best supporting actor. I don't get it, dude. I'll even say this, Bruce McGill in, in Time Cop is better. His performance in that's better than most of the performances of the people that were nominated. Look, man. So anyway, it's, but we're not going to. You're never going to have to argue with me about D-Day. <laughs> no more comparisons. Bottom line is this. This is the, one of the best things that Nick's ever done. This is one of the best things that Allison Loman's ever done. This is the, one of the best things that Sam has ever done. And probably for the rest of their careers. Yeah. It's the material. It's the way they, I mean. Anytime you see a character study like this and you think yourself that I could see on stage, I could see that being performed on stage. To me, that's, you know, character studies are all about dialogue. I know movies like, don't, don't, you know, show, don't tell. Fuck that. <laughs> Fuck well, that. it's funny when I say the movie hits all the right notes. I mean, I'm just talking across the, the way it's lensed, uh, the score. I mean, everything, man. It, yeah. It, the, the entire movie hits all of the right notes all the way across the board. Speaking of notes. <laughs> Speaking of notes. We got Hans Zimmer. Now, bong. I mean, he's, it's become a joke now because, you know, bong, bong. I mean, they, in 2005, they make a joke about that in Forgetting Sarah Marshall. You know, dark, ominous tones. They don't say Hans Zimmer. <laughs> Jason Siegel's character. Zimmer. That's what they mean. Sure. Jeez. But dude, in between all this, I mean, he's done, I mean, I can't remember the first thing he did with him. I, 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 I'm blanking now, but he's done so much with him. But you you know him from all doing all the, the, the Nolan movies now where it is these, I don't know, less a score and more like random notes. But what he does in this, you get re instantly reminded, like, oh my gosh, you are just you do stuff that fits the work because, but, we, but that's the thing we've been inundated with so much action and superhero stuff from him in the last 15 years, you forget how good of a composer and how just way he can just move you with a, with of some musical notes. And it, you can watch like a, a, a 60 second scene in this and it's more notes than you hear in all of Dark Knight. <laughs> yeah, man, totally. Or Inception. Or Inception. <laughs> <laughs> the imagery to go with that wonderful score is John Matheson. And he's been working with Ridley since, I want to say Gladiator was his first one, right? I think so. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. But he's been with them for, obviously, Matchstick Men, um, Kingdom of Heaven. And then in between all that, okay, I I don't talk a lot of, we talk about Joel Schumacher here and there, but I've never talked about Phantom of the Opera on the show before. I I wasn't into the whole idea of it because I was a fan of the musical, but I wasn't, you know, I don't know if I, I don't know you how You want to hear Gerard Butler sing? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> That's what I'm saying. John also did, okay, this is, he did Ridley's um, Robin Hood. And I'm like, I'm like, oh, whatever about it, but I like Russell, just find it he did John Landis's Burke and Hare and it shows you even the same year, he can do a big epic movie and then do a small movie too. Then he'd work with Matthew Vaughn in first class and then 47 Ronin with Carl Rinch. Man from Uncle, we just talked about Guy Ritchie yep. and then he followed that up with King Arthur with Guy Ritchie. 
And probably one of the finest pieces of work he ever lensed was, as far as his work, was James Mangold's Logan. I'm like, fuck, amazing. Fast forward two years and he did Detective Pikachu. This dude wants to have fun making movies. And Detective Pikachu is, is, I know people laugh at it, but it's a beautifully shot movie. It's super colorful. It's really awesome. And guess what he's got coming out next year? Sam Raimi's return to Marvel. Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. Now talk about a movie that's going to be chock full of imagery. Man, this might be the pinnacle of the dude's work, but what he does in Matchstick Men, nice, tight close-ups of, of very intimate moments. And you, you don't get a lot of wide stuff in this. And it, it really creates a vibe along with the fantastic dialogue and the performances. It's just, fuck, dude. It's like being able to watch a play, but, but sitting right there watching everybody like you're just, you're flying the wall. And that's, that's the best kind of movie that uh, of character studies is being a fly on the wall and not feeling like you're in a movie. Right. To add to what Roger Ebert said. Yeah, man. When you cut away, you're like, oh, what's going on now? You don't, it's not jarring. You're like, oh, ooh, all right. It's like a multi-course meal that you don't know is coming. And you know, the next course of the meal is something that you've never had before, Mike. But it, it builds on the previous thing and your palate is, is being prepared for the next course all the way to the end. And it's just fucking gorgeous all the way through beautifully acted, beautifully shot. And that sound, by the way, too, I know we mentioned the score, but the sound design. Oh, yeah, man. <sighs> that The sequence early on when, when Cage is cleaning his house. Yes. Okay, you can't really hear it. No. If you're if you're just kind of watching it through your stereo speakers on your TV, but when he's got the toothbrush out, yep. You can hear it if you've got a good surround system. You can totally hear it. Cleaning of the glass. Oh, I mean, man. the squeaking it, it, it all is like, I mean, that that is one of my favorite scenes in the movie. And I know it seems like really, but it is. And if you've seen it, you know why. Yeah. Um, and if you haven't seen it, I don't want to say too much more because, you know, it's something you should experience. And I don't want you to be like looking for it and then let down and be like, I hate you. Because <laughs> you can just hate me anyway. Yeah. The sound design in this movie, I mean, and just, you know, the movie is clever without being too clever, if that makes any sense. Yeah. You're not turned off by the um, the movie taking you down a road and then maybe throwing you down another road and you're like, what the fuck? You know, it, it, it does. It's not clever for clever's sake. It's just very well written, very well directed and very well acted. Right. That's the thing that makes these confidence or con men films work is when all of the dominoes are lined up. Cause when, when you hit that domino, if they're not and they've stopped falling, then you've lost your audience. And, and, I was with this movie right down. I'm always, every time I watch it, I'm with it right down to the last moment when, when we see Roy at the end of the movie and knowing that Roy is going to be okay. And yeah. no, it, you know, it's, it's great. And I want to add to, to, so we don't do this very often where if we, we will say something that supports, we'll talk about what other critics uh, will make comments about things to kind of support what we're saying, but not everybody loved this movie, even though uh, Rotten Tomatoes had a solid 82%. Now it, 2003, I mean, it's not really, you know, Rotten Tomatoes doesn't carry as much weight as it did until like the mid-aughts, right? Or, or the mid-2010s, right? Right, when everybody just realized that they could be their own Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> exactly. There were a couple of Boston Globe, New York Post kind of like shit on it a little bit. 
they like they praise Sam Rockwell and Allison Loman no different than what we did, but then they kind of like dumped on Cage saying he's more irritating than interesting. And I thought, and I, and I didn't take that as the shot at Cage. I took it as somebody that seemed to be pretty insensitive to somebody who's got OCD and Tourette's. Yeah, totally. Right? And it's like, I'm like, you keep to me, I know what somebody's, I know what it's like to have, I have somebody that's very close to me that, that, that has OCD and not just in a jokey matter, oh, it's my OCD, no, really has it. And my friend's cousin, who I grew up with, has Tourette's and not in just the tick nor oriented Tourette's that you see Nick having this, he's got the like serious ticks and he has, he doesn't, he doesn't blurt out, you know, expletive language, but he blurts out in certain words over and over again. I know, and I've been around them, so I know what it's like. He nails it. He, he nails it. And even and if some people go, oh yeah, I, I, I've seen documentaries on people with Tourette's. I'm like, dude, it's, it's accurate. Yeah. It, his performance is accurate. So to me, when I read that thing from Renee Graham and the Boston Globe, I'm like, you sound like an insensitive fuck. <laughs> you sound like to me. Yeah, totally. Right. But then, and of course, the New York Post uh, from Lou Liminick, he was talking about his quote was praise the film acting, but then noted the viewer, quote unquote, may end up feeling as suckered as Roy's victims. And I'm like, what the fuck does that mean? Wow. He didn't like the twist ending. He said, believing it was a large detractor of the film's value. Oh yeah. See, I, you know, I don't know, man. I feel like that's just somebody who got fucking taken and and then was pissed and just. That's how I always feel about it. That's how I feel about the people that shit on Iron Man 3, all those fucking Marvel dicks, right? They got pissed off because that's not who Mandarin is. And I'm like, you got fucking fooled, dude. And that's yeah. all there is to it. Totally. Eat a bag. Anyway. Don't be mad. Yeah. Yeah. Just enjoy it. I just think it's so funny how two different people can praise the acting in it. And then single out things that are not detractors from it. They're the complete opposite. They help make the movie more well-rounded and uniquely delivered. I, again, I think Roger Ebert, not because we both feel so positively about the movie, he gets it right. He, I mean, he may as well have said the words for us. Yes. It's it just, it's funny because it's a kind of movie that you that if you know you're going, and that's another thing too, you go in to see this movie. When I finally got around to seeing it, I still didn't know what it was about. It, it was one of the, probably one of the greenest I've ever been to go in to see a studio movie. And especially at a time when I was still like really paying attention to these kinds of things, you know, it was 18 years ago now. Yeah. 18. And when it happens and when you're experiencing it, you're just like, wow, this is fucking good. This is yeah, so man. good. I mean, that's one of the things I love about Ridley Scott is like, he's not pigeonholed. He doesn't make the same movie over and over. I love his character study movies. I love his big movies. I mean, you know, you and I have talked about our love for Ridley Scott's and, and some of the movies that, that aren't as big a hit, like Mastic Man or Body of Lies or yeah. Someone to Watch Over Me, which is a personal favorite of mine. You know, his body of work, man, if you look at it, I mean, there's things, dude, there are so many movies on there, things we, you and I haven't even talked about, like, yeah. G.I. Jane or yeah. White Squall. And, and of course, his his movies are going to take twists and turns. So for someone to say something like, oh, you know, I didn't care for the twist ending. I'm, Shut up. That's, that's what these movies are. That That's what a confidence or a con movie is. There's always going to be a twist. Right. Is it not? I mean, you should know that going in. Right. This is one of the few times that we're talking about being, you know, a movie that's got, I remember something like, and I'm, I'm going to make a comparison because of, 
only because it's about confidence, man. But the grifters, it's in the fucking title. Yeah, grift. <laughs> I mean, you can't be surprised when there's something that happens at the end. And the fact is, if you're watching it thinking, hey, this is a movie about confidence, man, and you get fooled, you can't present your getting fooled and it wrapped in a bullshit review like that person from the post did. <laughs> it's like, oh man, that's worse than seeing a movie that that's just like, it's, it's like seeing the sixth sense and then get to the end of that. Right. There was nothing about to make you think there was a twist ending. This is a, this, you know, M night Shyamalan was a new voice. I don't want to see you got fooled. It's cinema, dude. It's like, that was like the Iron Man three comparison I made earlier. Don't you want to go see a movie and be surprised? I'm like, I know you're so well-versed in comic books and, you, and then and then Iron Man 3 does what it does to you. It's like, you should appreciate that and let's sit back and chuckle and laugh and go, all right on. Right. You know, you should appreciate it. Not get fucking, oh, I hate that. I just don't, I, I will never give people a hard time for liking movies, but I will definitely give people a hard time not liking them for bullshit reasons. Oh yeah, man. Look, there's a there's a million reasons to like a movie. Don't be mad because you were fooled or, you know, I mean, that's part of the fun of going to movies. I mean, to me, it's like, I always say, I'm not a fan of gimmick movies, but that doesn't mean I didn't enjoy it the first time. Like the sixth sense, I enjoyed it. It's just once the cat's out of the bag, I can't go back. Right. Or the usual suspects, you know, same thing. I don't think that this movie falls into that category because there's, there's so much more, like like Ebert said, every time they cut away from the plot point, there's a more interesting plot point. Yeah. Uh, you know, there, there's a lot going on here. So this is one of my favorite movies. I'm glad we bumped it up into August. We'll, we'll continue with our regularly uh, scheduled programming for the rest of the month. But we, we, it, I think this was a good place to sneak this in. And yeah, and I think it was important for us to reiterate our love for Nick Cage. It's not the, I feel like people watch his work these days, ironically. They do, 100%. And I think that's unfortunate. Yes, disengaged. I know we pick certain movies for certain things, but here's the, here's the thing. We don't, we're not watching those, ironically. We're not. We're, we enjoy it because we want to watch them. We want to see him have fun. And here's one thing you could say about it. All of the movies that he does, he always gives you the same thing. He, what he gives you in Matchstick Men for, that, for the character of Roy is the same thing that he gives you in Mandy. It's the same thing that he gives you, I'm assuming, <laughs> in Primal. He's going to give you what the character needs. And the second scene that he's in in this, if you're not hooked, you know what I'm saying? Yes. That, that's that scene where you, where you realize there's more to the con than just the phone call. That they're the one that repeating con that that Sam and Nick have, you realize, wait, this is not a straight ahead movie, and Nick is fucking great. That one part in there where you know I'm talking about, he's super calm and he just blurts out a word and shakes the other people in the scene. Yep, fucking great, dude. It's like we love Nick Cage because he is somebody that leaves it on the field. Every movie, no matter how small, no matter how big, not to be rhyming here, but if you haven't seen Pig yet, here's your double feature. Matchstick Men is on HBO Max right now. Yep, that it is. Watch it in between watching Suicide Squad for the 50th time. (laughs) Yeah, man. And you're going to see, well, before you sit down and watch it and before you hit rent, grab a box of Kleenex. 
because this may be one of the most heartbreaking, moving performances the man's ever delivered. We talked about top three, this being a top three in Nick Cage performances. He slid in my top five with Pig. He is fucking powerhouse, just like he is in this. And he's, it's just, I mean, we should start to just change it to Karate in the Cage because it seems to be fitting, right? <laughs> Corey cries for Cage. <laughs> That's it. Anyway, Mastic, man, HBO Max. If you listen to this a year from now or three months from now, it's not there anymore. I got a feeling you're going to find it somewhere else. You can buy it. Uh, uh, you can buy it for five ninety nine at Prime or uh, Apple as well if you want to. And you might want to own it. I'm just saying. Yeah. It, it's one of those movies you're going to go back to. Oh, speaking of, let me, let me throw this out there. We always talk about run times. This movie does not feel 116. It's 116 minutes, just shy of two hours, and it does it moves so briskly, and that's surprising for movies like this. Usually, don't move that well. For for a movie that doesn't have any action set pieces to kind of bridge all the talky talk scenes, that's how compelling the performances are in this. So, yeah, I know it's again top three Ridley Scott movies for me. See, it's moved up two spaces since we started. <laughs> since we started. <laughs> If you want to follow the show on Twitter, you can follow us at Karate Pod, Instagram as well, at Karate Pod. Or if you want to follow us on Letterboxd, I'm at Corey underscore Culp. By the way, we're going to have a Letterboxd account up soon for the show, kind of working out the details of getting getting the email addresses correct. But if you want to support the show on Patreon, thank you, Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash KITG podcast. If you like to follow me, you could follow me at Chuck Frechette at letterboxd.com. <laughs> That's Chuck Frechette. No, wait, it's Chuck Finley at letterboxd.com. Or, or you can just follow me at Tom Cody like everybody else. Yes. Yes.